We are on week three of forgiveness, and I intentionally this week am trying not to come at you like a fire hose, like we have been doing for the last couple of weeks. Um, so my prayer all week has been that this would be gentle and pastoral, because if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we have said a lot, um, and we'll try to try to wrangle some stuff in. Our reading, our scripture reading for the day is going to come out of Isaiah chapter 2. We are beginning um, a few times a year as a church, we will allow the lectionary um, to dictate what we preach. The lectionary is basically uh, the scriptures handed out by the church calendar every year. The lectionary is intended to, if you go by the lectionary readings, every three years you cycle through the whole story of scripture. So um, if you've never participated in lectionary readings, which most of us haven't, if you didn't grow up in any sort of high church environment, um, this will be new to you. The season of Advent may be new to you. Um, the hope candle being lit may be new to you, but I'll explain all that more in detail next week. The reading for this week from the lectionary is Isaiah 2. Our sermon will not necessarily follow these lines, but I thought it was enough for us to read it this morning and then um, see if we could work it in. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Here is the message about Judah and Jerusalem that was revealed to Isaiah, son of Amos. In future days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will endure as the most important of mountains and will be the most prominent of hills. All the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the temple of the God of Jacob, so he can teach us his requirements and we can follow his standards. For Zion will be the center for moral instruction. The Lord's message will issue from Jerusalem. He will judge disputes between nations. He will settle cases for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up the sword against other nations and they will no longer train for war. O descendants of Jacob, come, let us walk in the Lord's guiding light. Is this the word of the Lord for this morning for the church at large? That there's coming a time in the future where... God will judge disputes between nations. He will settle cases for many people. And the people will begin beating their swords into plowshares. They'll beat their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up swords against other nations, and they will no longer train for war. That sounds like heaven, right? And he says that there's coming a time at some point where this will be the reality, that... What we use to fight each other, we will turn into cultivating garden tools. Now, what we're going to find out over the next couple of days is that Jesus wanted that age to begin upon his arrival. So, that's what we got to look forward to. We're going to pick back up in Matthew chapter 18 with a story that kicked us off 
two weeks ago. And what I'm going to do is back us up just a hair. So we start at Matthew 18, 23, but we're going to back up just a little bit to Matthew 18, 15. And it says this, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault But when the two of you are alone. If your brother sins, you go, show him his fault when the two of you are alone. How many of y'all know that's pretty exciting? If he listens to you, you have regained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you. Because that'll work, right? So that at the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be established. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the whole church. If he re refuses to listen to the church, treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. All right. So that's pretty fun. You ever had this done to you? Being confronted by a brother that you sinned against or a sister that you sinned against? If you haven't, what you can guarantee is that you've been talked about. Behind your back. Because if they won't confront you, they'll talk about you. And if you won't confront them, you'll talk about them. And the old proverb goes like this, Where there's no wood, the fire goes out. And where there's no tailbearer, contention ceases. If we could stop gossiping, we could stop contention. So Jesus is trying to propose a way to be human, a way to live in a society where instead of this constant backbiting, we actually were not cowardice. We actually would go with courage and confront someone. Now this incredible phenomenon happens when you confront someone. You know what it is? You become transparent. If I confront Philip about his sins, Philip sins against me, I go to him, I say, Philip... You sinned against me. What I'm doing is participating in this supernatural phenomenon where Philip now has x-ray vision to see where I too have failed. This is why we refuse to confront people. Because it's easier to take my story of Philip's offending me over to Dale and say, Philip is a doggone something another cuss something. And here's what he did to me. Because when I share that, Dale doesn't have this superpower to look through me. If I go confront Philip, he does. This is some weird phenomenon that is set up in the universe. If you've ever confronted someone, you've experienced it. Okay? Confrontation was supposed to be the way of peace. The way of war is gossip. Confrontation is the way of peace. Gossip is the way of war. Why are we saying all this? Because Jesus is saying it, and he says, I'll tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. Again, I'll tell you the truth, if two of you on earth agree about whatever you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are assembled in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? 
Peter's asking Jesus this question. So Jesus just proposed this thing, and Peter says, Well, how many times should I offend my brother who sins against me? Now, the Talmud, which was sort of the Jewish book of extra rules, it was how they'd spell out how to observe the, the law, uh, specifically how to observe the Sabbath. In the Talmud, you were supposed to forgive the same person up to three times. So Peter is sensing in Jesus something a little more radical than three here. So Peter says, what, do you want us to do? We could do seven. Because Peter's like, that'd be a lot. Jesus is like, no, Peter, how about this? As many as, um, not seven times, but 70 times seven or 77 times. Some of your translations will sort of vary there. 70 times seven. So what we know is that God was not giving us this thing to say, okay, at 491, we're done. Um, what God was trying to do is show us this is basically the metaphor for unlimited pardon. How many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? Because that's pretty miraculous. No, Peter... 70 times 7. That's not easy. And then Jesus gives a story that we talked about a couple weeks ago. The story where this king was settling his accounts, finds out that one of his folks owes him 10,000 talents, which was an insurmountable number. Um, I've read that it could be as close to $6 billion that this man owed this king, 10,000 talents. This man asks for long-suffering, asks for patience, and this man grants it, the king grants it. Then the man who was pardoned the 10,000 talents goes and finds someone who owes him just a minuscule amount and forces them to pay the debt. Now this man who was just pardoned $6 billion has somebody who owes him $300, and rather than giving them the same forgiveness he's been given, he forces them to pay it back. The person who forgave this landowner, or this this master who forgave finds out that this man is doing this, that he's basically requiring folks to pay their debt. And he says, whoa, 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 we're throwing you in prison. If you want to treat people this way, I will throw you in prison until you pay what you owed me, which is going to be this, the rest of this man's life. And then Jesus says something that is really hard to wrap your mind around. He said, so also, this is verse 35, my heavenly father will do to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. So, a few questions, and I would love for this to be as much dialogue as possible this morning. What is forgiveness? When you think about, let's just say when you think about you're describing Christianity to someone, and you, you say, what is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus Christ died to forgive our sins. Well, what does that mean? That we have been forgiven. As if they never did something wrong? Say it again, Jenny. You're not, yeah, you're not held accountable anymore for, for them or for the action. What else is forgiveness unconditional love yeah mercy yeah 
Think about this, and I would love for y'all's feedback here too. Why would we be tempted to hold a grudge? Why would we be tempted to give in to unforgiveness more so than participate in forgiveness? Because we are. It's, we are seduced into it, and the whispers are very appealing. And so I think it's important that we identify those whispers in order to move beyond them. Why would we not forgive? Somebody didn't ask for it? Yeah. If they'd asked, we'd, we'd consider going through this thing, but they hadn't asked yet, so I don't even know if they know there's something wrong. Jim? Holding on to the grudge? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. 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 I think to to Missy's point, Jesus used this really incredible metaphor, and I don't know that it had ever been used before, but he talked about how if you see a speck in your neighbor's eye, first remove the plank or the log out of your eye, then go remove the speck out of your neighbor's eye. So he didn't say, don't then go to remove the speck. He said, first, if you see a speck in your neighbor's eye, remove the plank from your own, then go remove the speck from your neighbor's. Now, what most interpreters interpret that as is that I would show up to Dale. He and I have glasses on. So I would show up to him, and I would see in his eyes a reflection actually of what was sticking out of mine. This, the log in my eye would actually show up in his eye as a speck. And if I would go and remove the log out of my eye, I would show back up over here and actually the reflection would be gone. I have seen this happen more often than not for me. That when I attempt to go confront someone about an issue, if I first confront myself, I remove the problem. Not always. Because Jesus said, if you go back over there, and it's there, remove the speck. Forgiveness, according to Tim Keller, he's the one that wrote the book I was referring to last week, is a form of voluntary suffering. To forgive is for you to voluntarily suffer. I was reading um, this week on the neurobiology of forgiveness, and one of the things they were saying is that this forgiveness is to eliminate anger toward another person who has deliberately done something harmful or unfair to you. To eliminate anger toward another person who has deliberately done something harmful or unfair to you. Now here's our question that we started with two weeks ago. Why forgive? Why forgive? Clearly, if we're asking that question in the context of the scriptures we're reading, we're saying because God has commanded it. Um, we would say something like, because if you don't, then you won't be forgiven. Something like that, right? 
yeah, it can basically shut down your prayers. Um, yeah, if we don't forgive, why would we ever expect someone else to forgive us? What if we did not see forgiveness as a burden or as an obligation? What if the ability to forgive is actually a gift of grace? Because aside from the power of God, we are hardwired, physiologically hardwired to defend ourselves against attack. If someone approaches me right now and, and hits me, uh, tries to hit me in the face, it is, I'm hardwired to react in a way that is it's called the fight or flight system. Some of us flee, some of us fight, okay? It's a natural response mechanism. And what God has asked us to do is something that is totally contrary to our physiology. Something that can only happen if we have a heart that is transformed. We cannot forgive without the help of God. God has asked us to do something we cannot do. What if forgiving is a part of the yoke that is easy and the burden that is light? So think about the alternative. What is unforgiveness? Here's how I described unforgiveness this morning at the typewriter. A perverted form of justice that not only requires us to continue licking our wound, but keeps the wound alive through the power of bitterness. It is a bondage. Now here's one of the reasons I think we are so prone to harbor unforgiveness. Because we need justice. What happens if we take away the consequences? How will they learn if there's no consequences? Right? If we take away the consequences, how will they learn? How will my son learn to do good if there's no consequences when he does bad? If every time my son does bad, I just say, you're forgiven, baby. Will he ever learn? No. There's got to be consequences, right? God... There you go. In this scenario, the scenario of me parenting my child, I am the one who can dole out some consequences. In our relationships with one another, we're not the consequence givers. Unless maybe you work for somebody in here or something like that. You know, there's those governments, macro governments within this big micro system. But we have to realize that justice does not necessarily require a court hearing. That God has established a system of justice that just doles out consequences despite anybody meeting to assign them. It's where we would get a phrase like, you reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap life. God has a system set up that takes care of this kind of stuff. Now, what we learned several months back through Job is that there's a lot of disruptions in that system, which is why God's wisdom is governing the system. But through 
the story of Christianity, the story begins, like if you look at Matthew, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read several scriptures here. There's this thread that defines basically this whole walk. Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. Then in verse 14 he says, For if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive you your sins. If you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive you your sins. I'm going to make a quick comment there. God is not waiting on us to forgive before he forgives. Although you could interpret that scripture that way. The parable that we kicked off with in Matthew chapter 18 shows us that the, the king or the, the, the master initiates pardon. And then expects that we would give a little of what he has given us. Jesus on the cross, this is Luke chapter 23. This is how we ended last week. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Two other, starting in verse 32. Two other criminals were also led away to be executed with him. So when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. So Jesus teaching us how to pray. Basically, the only addendum he has to the prayer is that addendum of forgiveness. I'm going to do something real quick. Could y'all take that out to the porch? Thank you. I couldn't hear myself think. Um, yeah, my son will get a striping when he gets home. No. Um, a popsicle, yeah. John chapter 20. Y'all back with me? Sorry about that. I knew I unlocked that back door for a reason this morning. This is very interesting. John chapter 20, verse 19 on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the disciples had gathered together and locked the doors of the place because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Jesus, this is Jesus appearing to them for the first time after the resurrection. He says, uh, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So Jesus' first word post-resurrection is peace. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, don't read further. He's about to say something else. What do you think he's about to say? If you read further, don't answer. Jesus has just come back from being resurrected from the dead. He encounters the disciples. He says, peace be with you. He shows them his hands. He's still got the scars there. He shows them his feet. And then he breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them something. 
what would you think he would say post-resurrection to a people who are just receiving the Spirit, having a heart that is transformed for the first time, we, we've re, we're redeeming the curse of Adam, all this stuff, like the, the, the fullness of redemption is happening, and he says a sentence. What would you think he would say? Yeah, something like, give away everything that you've been given. Something like that. Like, you, you just received the Holy Spirit, give the Holy Spirit to everybody. What else would you think he'd say? Post-resurrection, you're there, you're just anticipating. What's Jesus about to say? The hope here is that we're wrong, right? Or then it doesn't make the sermon work. So it's okay to be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I literally just died for the sins of the world and death couldn't hold me. Y'all do the same thing and it won't be able to hold you either. That would be pretty powerful, right? And here's what he says. He breathes on them, so he just... Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. What the heck? That's weird. And this is the way Jesus starts the new world. With a message of forgiveness. Y'all ever seen the bumper sticker that says, Not perfect, just forgiven? If we would have realized that Jesus on the cross was not just the forgiveness of our sins, but the example for how we were to treat those who sinned against us, we would say, Forgiven. That's why I'm perfect. Oh, you can't say stuff like that in church, can you? Because we like the not perfect, just forgiven bumper sticker. Not perfect, just forgiven. Because what happened on the cross was just the pardon of my sins. It wasn't an example for how I was supposed to treat those who sinned against me. But it was. Are there consequences for sin? Certainly. Jesus died. If there were no consequences, he could have come and just shared what he was sharing anyway. This paralytic man is lowered through the roof by his friends, and he's coming to be healed. And Jesus tells him, he said, your sins are forgiven. Rise up and walk. Jesus is forgiving sins before he dies on the cross. Why does he have to die? Because there are consequences. He just took them all. For me and for the person who wronged me.
Forgiveness, like about every other command that Jesus has commanded us, is very impractical. I'm going to give you a few impractical commands and we'll be done. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. But whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your coat also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you. And do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. That's very impractical advice from Jesus. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. And pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be like your Father in heaven. Since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? So then, verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not perfect, just forgiven. That's not our bumper sticker. Possibly perfect because I've been forgiven. If I have a semblance of perfection, the bumper sticker says, it's because I've been forgiven. If I have given you a good thing, it is because a good thing has been given to me. And we'll end with this one. Hebrews chapter 12. As you know, before I read this, we'll just recap a bit, because we're going to move on from this after this week. But as you know, um, forgiveness is hard. That's why it's the cornerstone of the new creation. Valuable things are valuable because they are rare and they're hard to come by. What Jesus displayed on the cross was the most valuable thing the world has ever seen. So I want to relieve some pressure on us, but also try to inspire us. This thing is hard. We should not expect to be able in an instant to forgive someone who has wronged us. However, we should imagine ourselves one day being able to say, I really am not mad at them. I really do hope good for them. Even Jesus on the cross, according to 1 Peter, it says that while they're reviling him and mocking him and spitting on him and beating him, he entrusted himself to the judge who was righteous. 
He entrusted himself knowing justice needs to come for this. This is, this is unfair. And the important thing for us to remember is that Jesus' resurrection is what redeems what happens to him at the cross. He's accused, he's blamed, he suffers. And what happens in the resurrection is that God says, no, no, it looks like, for a minute it looks like you lose. It looks like justice doesn't have the final say. Even Jesus himself was in the grave for three days. So we might have to wait a little longer. Because we might have deserved a few of our stripes. <laughs> we might have to just leave a few of them in the grave. That's bad theology there. You get the point. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness, for without it no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no one be like a bitter root springing up and causing trouble, and through it many become defiled. Pursue peace with everyone. Some translations say it like this, If at all possible, pursue peace with every man and holiness, for without, without it no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no one be like a bitter root springing up and causing trouble. And through it, many become defiled. So here's our summary. We have been forgiven. We have been forgiven of more than we will ever have to forgive. Our ability to forgive will only come as a result of us having been forgiven. If we are unaware of what we have been pardoned, we will definitely lack the ability to pardon. But if Christianity hinges on any virtue, it is the virtue of forgiveness. It is the message of Jesus Christ. Not just the forgiveness of our sins, but then the example that, oh, that's how we heal the world. So may we be a people who pursue peace with all men and women. May we be a people who do not allow anger and bitterness to take root. May we be a people who are able to, on a daily basis, say the prayer, Father, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. May we be able to live the impractical way of Jesus. And may we hopefully one day swap our bumper sticker out that says, not perfect, just forgiven. With the one that says, I have perfect behavior sometimes. Because I've been forgiven. <laughs>